If you have a Bible, please open it to the 21st chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 21. This morning, God willing, we will finish this chapter, finish what is commonly known as the Olivet Discourse, and finish even the larger section of chapters 20 and 21, Jesus' Passion Week in the Temple. And I'd like to begin our time by reading Luke 21, starting in verse 5 through the end of the chapter. Um, The notes are in the bulletin on the back side of the notes is this morning's text, but I'd like to read the larger text in which it is a part of Luke 21, starting in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? He said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famine and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let, those, let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations." And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So, also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all. Has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, 
But my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand for the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to hear him in the temple to hear him. Let's pray. Lord God, as we finish this large section um, in which your son details with clarity and precision the end, the end of our history, the end of the age, the signs of his coming, the destruction of Jerusalem, the persecution that awaits those who follow you. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would help us to heed his warnings, that we would take his counsel seriously, and that we would live sober, alert lives. Lord, we pray that you would come soon, that you would return and, and redeem your people, and help us to persevere while you tarry. In Jesus' name, amen. This is our fourth chunk of, as I said, what is commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. Um, Jesus predicts the end, part four. And this week, as Jesus closes his teaching, we will be focusing on living in light of the Lord's return. Even though Jesus has a lot of things to say about the future, the application he gives his disciples is for the present. His application for us is for the present. We're going to look at this in three parts. Jesus' parable, Jesus' prescription, and Jesus' pattern. I'd like to begin by reading Jesus' parable. This is one of the shorter parables, and it's really pretty simple. There's one point, one point to be drawn. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place... You know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. So as Jesus begins to end, close his teaching that began as people were marveling at the, the beautiful and mighty stones of the temple, predicting their destruction. They asked him, okay, when will these things be? What will be the sign? And Jesus is now wrapping this up, tells them a parable of the fig tree, but literally of any tree. Uh, and, and, and you know this, that in the winter, for non-coniferous trees, their leaves fall off, and in the spring they bud, the leaves come out, and that tells you summer is coming. It's pretty straightforward. The fig tree is probably one of the more remarkable ones, as it's completely barren and bare. In the winter, Jesus may even have been passing by one. He's speaking either in the temple or en route back and forth to the Mount of Olives as we read at the bottom here. And so he uses this pretty simple analogy. And it's basically observing a sign and knowing something's about to happen. How do you know when winter is finally ending? When the buds come out on the trees. Likewise, Jesus says, as a fig tree in summer, so the kingdom draws near. And here he enters this new category we've spoken about, the kingdom. 
So we've talked about the destruction of Jerusalem. We've talked about last week the return of the Son of Man. Now we're talking about the kingdom. And as we put these things together, what we understand is that Jesus will return. And when he returns in his glory, as we see in verse 27, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That will also be the time that he brings a kingdom. You can go read Psalm 2 and see what that looks like. But the resurrected, glorified Son of God reigning on earth. This kingdom that has been spoken of through Luke's gospel. His earliest reference is in Luke chapter 4, verses 43. Jesus is going around teaching, and they want him to stay. And in 43, he says, I must preach the good news or the gospel of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose In Luke 8, 1 again, we get this programmatic statement. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And throughout Luke's gospel, there's been much to read and much that has been said about the kingdom of God. And now Jesus, for the first time in this Olivet Discourse in Luke's account, plugs this concept in as well. And so it's important to understand. Because if you're trying to study what is the kingdom of God, there can be a lot of confusion about that. And not the least reason is because Jesus speaks of it in at least two distinct ways, even in Luke's gospel. Jesus can speak of the kingdom as something that is already present. So listen to Luke 10, 9 through 11. He tells his disciples to go to heal the sick in the towns and to say the kingdom of God has drawn near to you. In Luke 11, 20, they're saying that he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus responds, but if by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And in Luke 17, 20 through 21, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So Jesus in Luke's gospel And other New Testament writers can speak of the kingdom in a sense as being present. But in passages like this and other New Testament passages, the kingdom is spoken of something that is not here. There's a a nowness to the kingdom and a not yet to the kingdom. And that tension can be difficult for us to grasp. So, for instance, speaking of the, the not yet aspect, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come. It only makes sense if it's not here. We want your kingdom. Bring your kingdom. May it come. Or Luke 13, 28 to 29, Jesus speaking in a future sense. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't try to mix weeping and gnashing together. Um, There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out. People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. This is something that will happen. Abraham's going to be there, apparently. And nothing like that has taken place. Or Luke 19, 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he tells in the parable of the landowner who goes on a long journey. The parable of the ten minas. No, it's not coming just yet. So there's a legitimate sense of, not confusion, but it's, it's difficult to grasp. Is the kingdom here or is the kingdom not here? And the kingdom's now in a sense, but not like it is. 
or will be in the future. In fact, I think the clearest parable that helps explain this understanding of the nowness of the kingdom and the not yetness of the kingdom is in Luke 13. Turn to Luke 13, um, verse 18 through 21. Pastor Daniel uh, preached this text a year or so ago. And I, and I think these two examples of the kingdom helped us to see the nowness of the kingdom and the not yetness of the kingdom. Luke 13, verses 18 through 21, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of all the air made nests in its branches. And he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And see, in both pictures, something can be growing. Leaven can be spreading through a loaf. A mustard seed can be growing, and yet there's a future full picture when this tree is grown, the birds are nesting in it that isn't present. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that. I think that's the helpful way of of looking at it. It's something that is growing, that is present, but not like it will be. Not like it will be. Not like when the, the loaf is fully leavened. You see, the kingdom of God, I think, is made up of at least three parts. You've got a king. He's present. You've got some subjects of the king. You've got the disciples, and you've got land, some sort of domain or sphere of domain. And so there's a sense in which when Jesus rules his people, when his followers follow him, the kingdom of God is functioning, is operating, is growing. But as as I understand the Bible and the New Testament, Jesus will eventually, according to Psalm 2, rule the nations with a rod of iron. The kingdom will be total, global, complete. And that rule and that kingdom will be of a much higher degree and power and force to which his current rule is, is pale in comparison. And so your blanks here, of what Jesus is speaking about, the kingdom drawing near, when, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom in that sense, and it becomes clear when you parallel that with what he just said earlier about the redemption drawing near, is he's not speaking of its inauguration. See, one of the, one of the ways people speak about the kingdom's nowness and not yetness is that we live in an inaugurated kingdom. According to Philippians 2, Because Jesus was obedient to the point of death, God has therefore highly exalted him and bestowed, past tense, a name upon him which is greater than any name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven or on earth and under the earth. So Jesus has been crowned king at the act of the resurrection. As it is written, today I have begotten you. I mean, Paul cites that, proof of the resurrection. So Jesus is king of kings, and yet according to Psalm 110, he is awaiting his enemies being made a footstool. So he's a reigning, inaugurated king who is not yet fully ruling. He rules in embassies. We're we're like an embassy in a foreign land, a land that he will ultimately come and conquer. And now in this age, people are welcome to, to change their citizenship, to enter into his kingdom, to hail him as king, to become his subjects. But when he returns, he will smash his enemies. And so Jesus is not speaking then about the inaugurated kingdom, but rather its consummation. Not its inauguration, but its consummation in this passage. The kingdom is drawing near that global, geopolitical, absolute, real kingdom where a king is on earth ruling subjects. That is what he's speaking of. And it is drawing near when these things take place. What things? 
Well, there's two references in our passage to these things. Verse 31, so also when you see these things take place. Verse 36, stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. And in our passage, many things have been predicted to be told, right? So we saw that in verse 12, before all this, the things that will characterize the time period until he returns will be persecution, suffering. I don't think those are the things. Those are typified. I think these things probably refer to the most imminent harbingers and signs of his return that we looked at last week, the destruction of Jerusalem, when it's surrounded, verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. That's the same language Jesus was using in the parable of the fig tree. Summer is near. The kingdom of God is near. And the sign of the Son of Man, when these things begin to take place, verse 28, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. We saw in verse 25, there'll be signs in the sun, the moon, the stars on earth. So, when these things, these, the heavenly signs take place, when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, then the kingdom is drawing near. And as we read, we looked in the previous weeks in Zechariah, the timetable is that the nations surround Jerusalem, Israel is a nation because of God's spirit, repents, turns to Christ in faith, believes in their Messiah. He comes and fights them. And you can read it in Zechariah 14, and a kingdom is set up. That's just a straightforward reading of Zechariah 14. And so, when these things take place, the kingdom has drawn near. And then Jesus makes one of the more enigmatic and debated statements he makes in any of the Gospels, and that is this. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And of course, the question is, what does he mean, this generation? And to make matters worse or more difficult, it's clear from verse 33 that whatever Jesus just said, he's telling us to absolutely bank on and depend upon. Heaven and earth will pass away, he says, immediately following, my words will not pass away. So we need to understand what is meant by this generation. There are a number of views. I won't go through them all. I, I count up at least nine. Um, we can initially discard the ones where Jesus is just wrong. And that's, that's some of the more liberal people. Jesus expected these things to happen. Some try to argue that these things are fulfilled in 70 AD, in which case the thought would just be, okay, Jesus, listeners, that generation, surely some of them survived to 70 AD. The problem with that view is there's just too much <laughs> contained um, in our verse, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And look back at verse 22. These are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Now, it's possible the events of 70 AD are some sort of precursor connected to the future destruction of Jerusalem. But there is no way I think you can honestly argue all that has been written has been fulfilled. So how then do we take this generation? Some have suggested the generation means the people, the Jewish people will by no means disappear until all these things take place. I think there's a far simpler, um, straightforward take that many, many interpreters take as well, and that is this. Jesus is speaking of the generation, this generation are those who see these things take place. Whichever generation that is, whichever people are alive when these things begin to happen, that generation will not pass away, which means what Jesus is saying, point two here, is simply that Jesus promises that once it begins, 
All will happen quickly. Once it begins, all will happen quickly. Once the celestial signs and the siege of Jerusalem will not drag on for hundreds of years, it will take place in less than the span of a generation. I think that's the most straightforward way to take this. So he doesn't know when this will be. He's already likened it to a man who goes away on a long journey. He's already told him what must happen first. But once these immediate precursors happen, everything's going to play out very quickly. And maybe the span of seven years or less. So this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. This generation are those who see these things take place. Which means that Jesus promises that once it begins, all will happen quickly. And then Jesus makes an absolutely um, astounding claim. Notice point C, the certainty of Jesus' words. Heaven and earth will pass away. Now notice this pass away is said three times. This generation will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. This is absolutely astounding. And again, when we're looking through the Gospels, and some of the more liberal Christians argue that the deity of Jesus was bolted on, added on later, people who aren't God don't make statements like this, unless they're megalomaniacs. Jesus is saying, point one, that the creation itself, creation is less certain than Jesus' words. As confident as you are that the sun will rise tomorrow and set tonight, as confident as you are that the air you're breathing will will sustain you, Jesus' words, you should have a greater confidence in them than that. Your next point, Jesus is speaking as only God speaks. Only God can make claims like this without being a megalomaniac. And God does make claims exactly like this. Isaiah 40, verse 8 The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And some prophets come speaking for the Lord. They'll cite the Lord and give him that power and authority. Thus says the Lord. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, my words, Jesus' words. He doesn't link those words explicitly to God. On his own authority, his words will stand. They will endure. Which means the third thing. Jesus expects us to depend upon his words. Jesus expects us to depend upon his words. That's why I think he makes this, not oath, but this guarantee. And I think that sets up his next point, his prescriptions. Jesus is expecting, I think the logic is this, We will be tempted. Can we really trust what he has said? Can we really depend upon it? How certain are his words? And I think this covers all of his words, but most immediately what he's just said in the Olivet Discourse. And he says, you can depend upon them. You can depend upon them more than you can depend upon the sun rising, the sun setting, the cycle of nature. You can depend upon them utterly. And that only makes sense if, if that matters to us. He expects us to, to hang upon, to depend upon his word. If you've been coming here and you wonder why, why do we read through the Bible so much? Why do we talk about the Bible so much? Why do I talk about the Bible for so long? It's because we're trying to depend upon his word. And we need to understand what it means. We don't just want a cursory understanding. If we're banking everything on Jesus and we are depending on what he says and trying to order our life around it, then we 
want to know what it means. We want to know what he has said because we want to trust and believe and follow him. So Jesus here, this is another clear claim to deity on Jesus' part. He, He makes this audacious claim for anyone who is not God to make. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. At the end of our service, we're going to sing um, a line. The soul that on Jesus has trust for repose will never, no, never be left to his foes. That soul, though all heaven should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. You can bank on Jesus. You can trust in him. He will hold you fast. His word will uphold you. That's what he's saying to his followers. So there's Jesus' parable. Now we get to Jesus' prescription. And here's the application. And there's a sense in which we're to be alert and vigilant. I think that when these precursors come for whoever envisions, who lives to see them, they'll be obvious. And Jesus' prescription is for the now. And it's not for out there, it's for internal. Notice his, it's all about yourself. Because of what he's just said, and because we're banking on what he's just said, watch yourselves. Verse 36, stay awake, pray. The application of understanding eschatology should be practical holiness. It doesn't say go make your charts. Not that making charts is a bad thing. But truly understood eschatology, which is just you take ology, science, knowledge, you attach it on the Greek word, last. Understanding the Bible's teaching on last things, the latter days, ought to result in a change of life internally. Not simply arguments about eschatology, but rather holiness of life. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So if we've rightly understood Jesus and his teaching through this chapter, what does that mean for us? What's the so what? Jesus puts his commands into thinking of the two categories. First, watch yourselves at all times. Watch yourselves. Watch to yourself. Be on your guard. Be alert. Be vigilant. What are we to be on our guard against? Lest your hearts be discouraged and distracted. Lest your hearts be discouraged and distracted. The danger is, if we're not alert, we will be get weighed down. Our hearts, which speaks of our immaterial part, will become weighed down with dissipation, which are useless things, drunkenness, which is worse than that, and the cares of this life. In other words, the tyranny of the urgent, your most recent you know, email, text message, advertise, all these things that are around us will weigh us down. This actually, I think, links all the way back to the parable of the sower with a seed that grew upon thorny ground. And the cares and the concerns of this world choked out the seed. And you know that, that we don't drift into holiness. We don't drift into following Jesus. There are so many things in this world to distract us, so many pleasures offered, so many fears put forward to distract our attention. Given the certainty of Jesus' return, Given the certainty of his promises, 
a right response to a right understanding of eschatology is alertness to oneself, the dangers of one's own heart drifting, drifting with concern, drifting with other pleasures, drifting with drunkenness, drifting with cares about this life. And the concept is you're no longer living alertly. You're no longer living in light of the Lord's return. I mean, I guarantee you, if you expected the Lord to return this afternoon, you would live differently today than, than you would otherwise. And we are to be living in such a way, this is a high standard, in such a way that if the Lord were to appear in any activity we were doing, that we would not be ashamed. And it takes alertness to put that before you. It, puts, it takes alertness for us to, to guard ourselves from just drift, mission drift, just dissipation, pleasure. The cares of this life. And we stop thinking about that. I mean, after all, it's been 2,000 years. And there have been so many Christians convinced Jesus was returning in their day and they are wrong. And we don't want to be silly like them. Right? So let's just not even worry about it. And we stop praying like the early church, Maranatha, Lord, come. And we start saying things like, Lord, don't come back till I get to finish my vacation, please. I'd like to go to Disneyland first before you return. Right? Right? That might be evidence of drift. How does the New Testament end? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And 2,000 years later, we ought to be saying that with even more zeal, more fervor. We are to put his return in our vision and live in light of it and guard ourselves from drifting away from that knowledge and alertness. Watch yourselves, lest your heart be discouraged and distracted The day will come upon the world like a trap. And the picture of a trap is simply traps only work when you don't see them coming. You don't knowingly walk into a trap. And so when a trap springs, you are by definition surprised, caught unawares. And you do not want to live in such a way that when you face the Lord at his return, or if you die before that, you are not prepared, trapped. Stay awake at all times. The day will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. All of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us will face the Lord. And so we need to be watchful um, so that when we stand before the Lord, we are not caught by surprise. We're not caught unawares and unprepared. What else? Praying in wakefulness. Praying in wakefulness. Verse 36, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Praying for for two things. First, for strength. So we're keeping the Lord's return in mind. We're guarding ourselves from drifting. And that is informing our prayers. And what we're praying for is strength to escape these things. Think can mean one of two things. One, that we would avoid these things. Jesus pronounces a woe upon those who endure those, these things, especially the weak and the helpless, pregnant and nursing mothers. But also the strength to endure these things, I think, as well. It's one of the ways we escape, escape the temptation, escape the drifting power of these things. Because he warns his disciples, right? In, look back in uh, verse 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues 
in prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Now, that may weigh one's heart down, right? So pray for strength that you can either avoid or endure this because look at what he says in verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your lives or yourselves. We talked when we studied that passage about how true faith will persevere because the shepherd will shepherd it. He will not let us slip through his fingers. He will bring us back when we stray. He will lead us through safely to Jordan's far side, as we sang this morning. But he does that in part through these instructions. We need to be watchful. We need to be prayerful. We need to be alert. That's the first reason we need strength is to escape and to persevere these, through these things. The second, more positively, is to stand before the Son of Man. That's an amazing thought. Turn, turn to Isaiah chapter 6 with me for a moment. And while you turn there, I will remind you of what we learned last week. Jesus means by the title Son of Man. Last week, when Jesus spoke of coming on the clouds, coming with his power and his glory, we looked at Daniel 7, and we realized that, again, this is another claim to deity, that Jesus is not saying, I'm a simple prophet like Ezekiel, who dozens of times is referred to as Son of Man, but I am this Son of man, from Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is one who is before the very throne of God, resplendent resplendent in power and glory. And we're praying that we might stand before him. I want to show you someone else approaching that throne, the prophet Isaiah. Verse 1 of chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah doesn't stand. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What he requires is cleansing. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hands a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs of the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So Isaiah the prophet sees God in his temple on his throne. And he cries out his unworthiness. Um, 
And yet here, as we persevere through trial, as we live faithfully with our minds focused on Christ's return, and we avoid dissipation, drunkenness, the cares of this life, we have the hopes that we might actually stand before this Son of Man when he comes in his glory. The Son of Man, verse 20, back in Luke 21, 27, the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. And, and the picture of standing is, is, is one of the opposite of shame, pride. Jesus tells them to lift up their heads, right? Verse 28, and when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, for your redemption is drawing near. We don't want to be ashamed when he comes. We want to stand before him. Turn over the book of Acts, and I think we see a picture of one such man enduring. Chapter 7. Stephen rebukes the leaders of Israel. He recounts Israel's long history of resisting God, resisting his prophets. He sums up his rebuke to them in verse 51 of chapter 7. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and do not keep it. It's a stinging indictment. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He was faithful and he sees the Son of Man and the glory of God. Not the Son of Man in his glory when he returns, but still the glory of God and the Son of Man he lives to see. And Jesus is standing, beholding him. He dies faithfully. So we're praying for strength and praying that we might stand before the Son of Man. We might not be ashamed of his coming. That's how First John speaks of it. Which brings us finally to Jesus' pattern. Jesus' pattern. And here we get the, the bookend. This, this whole section of Luke 20 and 21 is bookended. Uh, we've seen that multiple times, but I'll show you again. Go back to the beginning of chapter 20 on verse 1. One day, which again lets us know that this is something typical. One day, as Jesus was teaching people in the temple and preaching the gospel... And it ends in chapter 21 here with, and every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So this is our literary book and this lets us know we're dealing with a unit. It begins with one day Jesus was teaching in the temple. It ends with every day Jesus was teaching in the temple. And lodging on the Mount of Olives. He's going back and forth. Um, likely in Bethany, which we've already seen in Luke, is on the Mount of Olives or on the side of the Mount of Olives. And I just want to draw three, three points from this. Um, 
three points from this. One, Jesus taught the people throughout the day. And that seems obvious. But I, I've said as we've gone through Luke's gospel, Jesus is first and foremost presented in Luke's gospel as a teacher. The miracles authenticate his message. But he's a, he's a teaching, preaching prophet. And when he first identified himself in his hometown, we read back a few years ago in Luke 4, 17 through 19, he stands up in his synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Remember, this is what Jesus says. This is his commission. This is his mission. This is what God would have him do. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, or messiahed me, or Christed. It's Hebrew, Greek, English for anoint. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, recovering of sight to blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he's sent to proclaim some things and to accomplish some things. And Jesus, my second point here, the people were continually eager to hear his words. The people were continually eager to hear his words. So Jesus is teaching throughout the day. The way Luke um, says this is to emphasize duration. This wasn't just something he did for part of the day, but really from dawn to dusk, Jesus is teaching the people of God in the temple of God, and they remain eager to hear him. And again, that links back with the beginning of this section. Go back to chapter 19, right at the end of 19. What happens right after he enters the temple in 1945? And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it the den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. So Jesus, throughout the entire week leading up to the Passion, is spending his days in the temple teaching the people. And initially the people are eager. They're hanging on his words. And at the end of the week, they're still eager. Presumably they're still hanging on his words. They're getting up early in the morning. He emphasizes all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Which brings us to a third and final point. Um, and this is sort of summarizing these entire last two chapters. Remember, all of Luke's gospel is getting us to the cross. From Luke 9, 31, where Jesus resolutely sets his face to go to Jerusalem to be crucified. It's all prologue to the cross. And here we are in the week before the cross. And we're going to catapult there once we start chapter 22. Look at how 22.1 begins. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called... The Passover, it's now drawing near. Verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread. By verse 7, it's the Passover. Verse 14, when the hour came. So we're, we're here, folks. And so for the entire week beforehand, we have seen that Jesus takes possession of the temple and he's teaching dust till dawn and there is a crowd from beginning to end eager to hear him which means, point C, Jesus has been utterly triumphant and utterly faithful in the week just prior to the crucifixion in Jerusalem. Utterly triumphant because six conflicts we saw with the leaders, 
of the people, the religious leaders. Six, three instigated by them, three instigated by him. And it's six, nothing, Jesus. Victorious, silencing them. Absolutely silence. I mean, look at the end of chapter 20, verse 40. They no longer dared to ask him any question. God's son and his prophet takes possession of the temple and takes all comers and he wins, hands down. He's been utterly triumphant. He's taken everything they can dish at him and he wins every time and he silences and he embarrasses and humiliates his foes as they're shown to be corrupt, lying men. He's been utterly faithful. God commissioned him to preach the gospel, right? That's what he says in chapter 4. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, their covering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Okay, was Jesus faithful to do that? You bet he was. Dusk till dawn, every day in the temple, preaching the gospel. Chapter 20, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people and preaching in the temple and preaching the gospel. And so as we summarize Jesus' public ministry, chapter 22, we're going to get a private time with the disciples, the institution of the Lord's Supper, The final preparations are made for the cross on his end, preparing his disciples. On his enemy's end, 22 is going to contain Judas preparing to betray him. So as Jesus' public ministry draws to a close here, Luke wants to emphasize he has been utterly triumphant and he has been utterly faithful. God gave him a task to do. He did it. He didn't let his heart grow weary with dissipation drunkenness and the cares of this life. He took heed to himself and focused on what God would have him do. And he was faithful and triumphant. I'm going to call the worship team up as we sing our final song. But let us use the example of Christ and his faithfulness. Spur us on to be faithful to his charge. That we would watch ourselves. Taking heed to ourselves. That we would stay wakeful. That we would pray. That we too may have strength to stand before the Son of Man when he comes. Please stand and we'll sing.